In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, I have a wonderful chat with Thea O'Connor, a body advocate and workplace wellbeing and productivity advisor. Thea and I met last year at the Bellingen Ignite conference run by the RDA Mid-North Coast. It was really great to have this chat again with Thea. In this episode, Thea shares with us what sparked her interest in the link between technology and health and the impacts of workplace culture on health and also on productivity. She tells us why we need body intelligence in our personal lives and in our workplaces, as well as why we need to take more power naps. Thea shares with us some techniques that can improve the way we work into the future and cultivate smarter workplaces now, as well as some tips and tricks to combat white-collar fatigue. We also have a really interesting discussion about the opportunities and challenges in the uptake of designing workplaces to support human bodies and brains and the dangers of intense hustle culture in the startup scene. We finish our chat discussing the emerging trend of designing algorithms and apps with the body in mind, and also the experiment I'm doing to try and break my phone addiction. As always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns, and smart cities. It's where we live, work, and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Thea. How are you today? Hello, Zoe. I'm really good and glad to be joining you on this podcast. I'm so excited to have you. Let's jump straight in. And can you tell us about your background and what you're passionate about? Sure. So I grew up in regional South Australia. If any listeners are from SA, they'll know the Iron Triangle. So I've been to, you know, Wyala, Port Pirie, Port Lincoln. And looking back, I can remember being pretty physical as a kid. It seemed I was interested or at least appreciated the joy of the body from an early age. I also remember, you know, being quite into healthy eating as a teenager and taking my healthy lunch to school and getting a bit teased about it by my friends. Um, I went on to train, you know, to be a dietitian after completing my science degree. And as soon as I specialized in the areas of weight management and disordered eating, it was in that work that I saw how many of us, especially women, have been conditioned out of trusting our bodies, conditioned out of our own body intelligence. You know, we'll follow the diet rules but could be scared to follow our own body's hunger and fullness signals. I then went on to work in the area of workplace health. And it was here that I really became interested in how our relationship with technology affects our physiology. And I guess we've known for quite a while now, you know, that as technology has taken over manual work, that's really contributed to things like the big rise in overweight. But now we're seeing more and more impacts of that intense, sedentary, screen-based computer work and it's leading to a whole range of problems everything from RSI to tech neck in quite young people it's not just middle-aged adults even through to our breathing did you know there's a term it's called email apnea and it's a play on the medical term sleep apnea that when we're intensely doing screen-based work emails we actually stop breathing or we breathe in a really upper chest kind of way yeah which can significantly affect your energy and attention so I guess I you know I see the many health challenges that technology contributes towards we know we all know the upsides of technology but in my coaching one-on-one with people and then in the workplaces I see this this real tension between taking care of our bodies while also enjoying the advantages of technology so I guess today I consider myself a bit of an advocate of the body 
in a culture which is becoming more and more disembodied. And, and I'm concerned that, you know, if we disconnect too much from the body, which is the fundamental foundation of our lives, we're going to run into problems, not just physically, but also emotionally. You know, when you disconnect from your body, it's, it's your basic home and people can start to feel a bit empty and lonely. So I'm watching this space really, really closely. How can we take care of our bodies in a world where technology is just penetrating so deeply? Mm. So what sparked your interest in this, you know, kind of link between health and technology? I guess it, it did start from observing those kind of things that I just mentioned and also observing in particular how, particularly in our work culture, we really almost encourage people to disconnect from their bodies or to do things like rely on artificial stimulation to get through the day, like caffeine, rather than work in tune with its natural rhythms. And, you know, I'm quite interested also in the historical context of the body in the context of the workplace um, or just the body and culture. And I think many of us don't realise that we're still living under the influence of old religious ideas that separated mind, body and soul. And in that separation, it was the body that was seen as the weak one, the wayward one. You know, it had to be kept in line with fasting and discipline. And, you know, those themes still exist today under different guises. Just to give you a few examples, uh, when I was working as a dietitian, I did a lot of work really bringing in a non-dieting approach to weight management. So not so much listening to the rules, but listening to your body to work in a, eat in a more natural way. And the fear that that generated amongst professionals and the public health systems, like, oh, goodness, we couldn't do that. People will just end up you know, overeating and getting fat. When I went into the workplace, I saw how tired people were. And I also knew the power of the power nap that just 10 minutes of sleep can give you another three hours of energy. There's no side effects. It's quick and it's free. But everyone was scared. Oh, no, we can't do that. Everyone will end up sleeping on the job. And now as I'm looking at more mature age workers in the workforce, I'm doing some work around menopause and how can we make adjustments to support women through this very natural life cycle. And then it's generating criticisms. Oh, no, women are going to use that as an excuse for poor performance. So it's like we don't get that the body is the master of self-regulation. Homeostasis is what it does. We forget that the body is extremely intelligent if only we would listen to it. So today, you know, I do champion the concept of body intelligence or BQ. We need to re rebuild trust in the body, learn to live in more body intelligent ways, both for the sake of our health, but also our workplace productivity. So that's kind of how some of the themes have developed over time for me. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're doing um, this type of work, like obviously our, our lives are getting more and more entrenched with technology and, you know, has been for quite a while now, but is increasing more and more. What are some of the, like, the key things that we need to be looking at if we are kind of in a space where we're just surrounded by technology? Mm. One of the things, and I'm looking at it from a health perspective, that I think we tend to do is, you know, not only get addicted to our technology and therefore never turn off and therefore don't do enough exercise, etc. But I think we're outsourcing our body awareness to technology too much. So, you know, people have got a lot of their health and fitness apps, which are really interesting, educational, and can be really helpful. But, you know, I have people say to me, oh, I'm not sure if I'm having a good night's sleep or not. And so they'll, you know, use a sleep app, pop it in their bed to measure their sleep cycles. I'm thinking, well, you could actually tune into your body and register whether you had a good quality sleep or not. 
or am I getting fit? We defer to our Fitbit. And while I can see the role, as I said, the awareness raising role of these devices, it's disempowering people. We're not cultivating our own body awareness and our body awareness is actually a really important life skill. So just to give you one example, so going back to, I was talking about body intelligence in a really simple terms, I talk about that. It's not so much athletic ability, but your ability to notice your body sensations, actually listen rather than dismiss like we do in a typical working day and then respond in a way that's going to support the body. So if we go back to that first foundational skill of listening to the body, that's actually called our interoceptive awareness and physiologists study it. It's our ability to notice our heart rate, our breathing, our digestion. And they've actually found some really fascinating links between a higher IA, interoceptive awareness, and a whole range of different health measures. The higher your IA, the better you are regulating your eating and your weight, which makes sense because the more you're in tune with your hunger and fullness signals, the better able you are to eat an amount of food that's appropriate for you. But they're also finding links between a higher IA and things like emotional intelligence and even decision-making. So this skill of being able to notice what's happening within our own bodies, it is really good for health, but it's really good for other aspects of our life as well. And I'm, yeah, concerned that we're outsourcing that a little bit much. So one of the foundational skills to develop, I think, is just to start practicing noticing what your body is telling you several times a day and just start to take it a little bit more seriously. So that this I'd like people to know this, listen to your body business. It's not kind of woo-woo or hippie or anything. It's actually grounded in, in really good science and there are some real-life advantages to getting better at connecting with your body, noticing what's happening and making adjustments. Mm. And, you know, as we move into this more kind of smart cities, smart communities, you know, even in our regional areas, etc. How do you think that you know, using some of these techniques can really improve the way we work into the future? Yeah, so my main area of work is within the workplace. So if we're talking about how can we cultivate smarter workplaces, I think the key thing that we need to do is, first of all, to educate people about the role of the body, not just in our physical health, but how it actually underpins some of the key workplace capabilities that we need now and into the future. So, for example, in the workshops that I'll do, I'll ask people, you know, given that technology is taking over cognitive labor now as well as manual labor, what are some of the key skills and attributes that we're going to need to thrive? And, you know, the participants will come back with things like the people skills, the communication skills going to be more important than ever. We're still going to have to talk to clients, manage relationships, inspire our teams. Emotional intelligence is part of that. They'll also name things around you know, innovation. We all know that we have to come up with good ideas for solving complex problems. We need to be agile to deal with change, et cetera, et cetera. And then when we actually look at what happens to those essential capabilities when we don't take care of the body, you actually discover, well, things like communication skills. There is no way you can be a great communicator. There is no way you can regulate your emotions if you've only had four hours sleep. You will not be able to think creatively or flexibly 
if your prefrontal cortex is affected by tiredness and fatigue, the prefrontal cortex, which does all, you know, that high order thinking, that's the part of the brain that's the most vulnerable to tiredness. And I go through and show how actually our body's physiology actually impacts all of those key capabilities that not just my workshop participants, but futurists predict are going to be the most important. So we have to really get that body intelligence is the basis of those other intelligences. But in the work that I do with quite well-educated professionals and in our current love affair with neuroscience and all things brain, we've got this tendency to want to skip over the body. It's like, yeah, yeah, we know all that. Can we please do all the interesting stuff like positive psychology and mindfulness and EQ? And I say, well, we can talk about those things, but you can't skip over the body. You know, you can't be mindful, for example, on four hours sleep and three espresso coffees. So I think the first step towards smarter workplaces is just really locating the body as essential as ever before, even though it might seem that the body is becoming a bit redundant. And then the second step is then to sit down, hopefully, you know, managers with their teams and say, okay, given that the body is the foundation of our lives and it's home to all of those workplace capabilities that we need to take care of, how could we design our days around the body? So use a body-centered design process. Put the body and its key design features in the center and then think, okay, how would we organize our days? Because when we do actually start to organize our working days in tune with the internal operating system of the body, I call that our boss, the body's operating system, it is better for our health and it is better for our productivity. And it's insane that in most workplaces, we actually work in direct opposition to the design of our bodies. So we're undermining our key instrument for living and working. And I'm talking, you know, the basic things like we disrupt our circadian rhythms with too much artificial light. If there's one thing the body's designed to do, it's to move and we sit down for eight to 10 hours on end. It's all of those kind of things. So I think we need to get smarter about how can we design our days around the design of our bodies. Because, um, yeah, no matter how much technology takes over our lives until we transcend into some other, <laughs> you know, being or form, the body is it and it needs to be put more front and centre. At the moment, it gets treated as an annoying dog. It's like, oh, God, you don't want to be watered again, do you? Or, oh, God, it needs another walk. So we need to elevate, elevate the body to its position of prime importance. Mm. This kind of concept is being taken up around, you know, Australia and the world. Are there any, you know, key examples of where people have really designed their day thinking with their body front of mind? I guess we're seeing it in different, uh, maybe focus on different topics. So, you know, we know there's been some really great work, for example, done by Queensland University around the whole need to move more. And they've got a fantastic website. It's called beupstanding.com about how to develop more, you know, dynamic ways of working. So you might see that. You might see some workplaces that are saying, okay, sleep, we really need to get on top of sleep. It's a basic fundamental need. Let's do some sleep education. And actually, you know, that's one of the most uh, common topics. The stuff around the more nuanced approach to designing your day in tune with your rhythm. So taking into account not only our 24-hour need for sleep, but also the little 12-hour dips that occur like after lunch, for example. There's less of it, there's interest in that, but less of an uptake because if we were to work in tune with those rhythms, we're going to have to stop during the working day. And the default, even if it's just for a few minutes, the default position has become work flat out. 
you know, get up in the morning, check your emails. If you're lucky, you stop for lunch, but you don't stop. So there's this, there's a very strong momentum towards this flat out working and learning how to insert some pauses and commas into your day in order to put more rhythm into your day, which makes sense because every cycle in the body is based on rhythm and cycle. That's more of a challenge. And it does take a concerted effort between, you know, managers and teams to change those norms so that people don't feel guilty for taking their whole lunch break or, you know, that they don't feel guilty for taking a 10-minute break mid-afternoon when their energy is slumping. So, yeah, I see different aspects of it, particularly the sleep and the sedentary, challenging sedentary work, getting more attention. The breaking up the, uh, the flat-out days is more challenging. And so is the whole problem around, you know, multitasking and distraction. Again, if we go back to the design features of the brain, the physical structure of the brain, the prefrontal cortex cannot do two things at once. We can only switch attention and with every switch in attention, there's a loss in speed and accuracy. However, workplaces really seem to lack the collective will to create work styles and work patterns to give professionals distraction-free time to do their heavy, hard, you know, thinking. And that's, that's a massive problem, that one. Because people like lawyers and accountants, they're, they're hired because of their good judgment skills, but then they're placed in environments where they're meant to be monitoring three screens, in open, you know, plan offices. That's madness and it's against the design of our brain. So a mixed up take, let's put it that way. Mm. Thinking about the future of work, and, you know, the way that we're working is changing, you know, more kind of short-based contracts and we've got uh, younger people coming into the workforce, not necessarily staying at the same place and potentially having to kind of switch up tasks like throughout the day. Is there any thoughts around that or any research that you've done as to the impact on our productivity, whether it's going to be positive or negative? Yeah, and if we are talking about people working more, like you said, on those short-term contracts, etc., well, one consequence of that is it's going to fall more on the individual to take responsibility for their bodies and their well-being. And that can be tricky, though, you know, when you're wanting the next gig and you're wanting to just kind of say yes to everything that comes up because you don't know where your next job is coming from, it can be harder to pace yourself there. So I think well-being could fall through the cracks in those kinds of scenarios. You know, I, I know people who go from one contract to another because they want the next piece of work, they're not giving themselves any recovery time at all. So I think this whole skill of factoring in adequate recovery time so that you can recenter and recharge, you know, top up your energy, re-establish your mental focus is going to become more important and it could become more challenging in this more, you know, gig economy. The good news about that though is that there's more interest and more science being done on the benefits of the short recovery breaks that you can take throughout the day, not just the longer recovery breaks that we know about like holidays. I mean, holidays are great. We absolutely need them, but the effects wear off pretty quickly. So, we're learning more about how, you know, quite short recovery breaks throughout a day, anything from one minute to 10 minute can actually make a measurable difference to your cognition and also your energy levels. Yeah, there's more and more science coming out around that. And I think that's going to be the essential skill for people working in this more flexible, unpredictable economy. Yeah, and I'm thinking we're kind of moving to this, you know, focus, like this more entrepreneurial, it's kind of happening with startups and that type of thing. And it's quite a dangerous 
some of the language is quite dangerous around like, oh, well, you know, you have to hustle, 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 hustle. You know, if you're not hustling, then, you know, you're not committed and all this kind of stuff. How do you kind of counteract some of that type of language? I'm not sure if you've kind of experienced that at all. Look, I have been exposed to the startup scene and I've also looked into it a little bit. I reckon it's probably going to be the one of the hardest areas to tackle. But we know that burnout is a massive shadow issue. I've written a whole article on this. We also know that mental health rates are higher amongst, you know, startup entrepreneurs. So it's a massive issue, but the culture, as you said, is so intense. People don't want to take time out for anything. And I did actually speak to someone who led up a, a, you know, quite a prominent incubator in Australia. And I said, you know, what scope is there to introduce in your, you know, training for startups something around the importance of, you know, self-care? Because if you don't take care of yourself, you're going to make pretty bad decisions. And he was kind of like, yeah, he could acknowledge it. But he said, yeah, but, you know, because often they get funded. He said, I don't want to fund these people to be sleeping on the job. You know, that's how he saw it. I want to get the most out of them. I think that's going to be a really, that would be one of the toughest areas to to start with. But I think a way in is to do what I do in other workshops. I say, okay, what are the most important capabilities you need for your jobs? And, you know, for startups, it's really good ideas and it's great relationships with clients. And when you start to show people the science behind how severely white-collar fatigue can impair those essential capabilities, that often does, you know, make people stop and think then you need a culture that's going to support that. And so it would take a leader who then creates a culture in the workplace that says, look, you're looking so exhausted. Will you please go and have a nap? Stop working because, you know, you're no good to me working like that. So not an easy one, but I'd love to hear, Zoe, if, uh, you know, you can see any receptive places there because I'd love to make a culture shift in, in some small way. And I really do think the power nap is a really fantastic practice for startup entrepreneurs. They don't have to start for too long. They're all sleep deprived. They can do it anywhere, anytime, and it does make a real difference. But they need to be able to stop in the middle of a busy working day. And many people lack that ability to simply stop, check in, and recharge. Because, you know, the momentum of the day can get so intense that people fear stopping or feel that they just can't. Mm. Yeah, and it's a trap that I... I often fall into that I'm so busy and I hate actually being busy, <laughs> let's be honest. And, you know, it's all my own creation. I love the work I do. And you just, you get into the trap of going, okay, I'm just going to stop. And then you think about all the things that you've got to do. I don't know. What type of tips and tricks do you have to kind of allow or give yourself permission to take that, you know, power nap or whatever? Yeah. Well, you just hit on the real key there, Zoe. It's the self-talk is so essential. So the first piece of work you need to do is like, okay, well, what do I say to myself that talks me out of stopping to recharge, you know, whether it's a nap or a 10-minute break? And you get people to write that down. So for a lot of people, it's just simply, I'm too busy. That would be the single most common piece of self-talk that stops people from taking recovery breaks. And then you have to come up with your own self-talk that would convince your inner boss that actually taking 10 minutes to reset your energy and attention is actually a very smart and responsible thing to do. But it needs to be in your own words and you need to convince your inner boss. I remember actually talking to Ita Buttrose because she's a famous napper and ever since she was editor of Clio magazine, she's power nap. She said, it's just how I do life. And I said, so what do you say to yourself when you're really busy? Because she still has massive days. And she says, I would tell myself that I will do it better and I will do it faster after my nap. 
So self-talk is essential. The next thing is to just put yourself in a training phase. You're not going to nail it straight away, you know, if you've been used to go, go, go all the time. And it might feel uncomfortable to start off with, but you can start off with saying, okay, I'll take a five-minute break, a five-minute walk around the block. If it comes to napping, use a mindfulness meditation you know, app if you need to help still a very busy mind. But practice is really essential. And then hopefully over time, you will start to notice some of the benefits and that's when it becomes a positive reinforcing cycle. But self-talk is critical. Practice in workplaces, having a buddy to remind you and support you also really helps. Like, come on, we're going for our 10-minute walk now or off you go. I don't want to see you for another 15 minutes because that's giving you the social permission to do this. Awesome. Thanks for that. I will take those tips on board. Hopefully everyone else can as well. So the way that we met was at the Bellingen Ignite conference. And what I took away, I guess, was, well, one, I still have my nap slip or permission slip. And it kind of just gives you permission. And obviously that's, you know, something that everyone can relate to. And then you bring the science in behind it. And I think it's really important as we move towards these smart cities and communities and everything that we realize it is about the humans. So if the, all this technology that we're incorporating, making things easier and whatever, if it's not buying back leisure time for us as people, if it's just making us more busy and more alert and more like, I guess agitated all the time because it's like, oh, well, there's a you know, notification here and a this there. Bringing back to that, and I, I really liked what you said about now we're moving into this kind of gig economy, that self-regulation, which I think will be quite difficult, easy for some people, but quite difficult for others who are used to a traditional workplace. And it is something we need to think about more and then using that technology that we have. So, you know, a mindfulness app, for example, like I use Budify and I, and I love it, but that's what I use the technology for at nighttime. You know, that's the only app I use at nighttime rather than, you know, trying to scroll through social media and stuff like that. So it is important that self-regulation, which I guess comes back to that BQ that you were talking about as well, going, well, I know that if I use my Butterfly app rather than watching TV, I feel better. At the time, it's a bit annoying because you have to go, okay, you know, this isn't entertaining me, (laughs) you know, but... I know that I'll feel better when I wake up in the morning and I don't need a sleep app to be able to tell me that, but some people need that. So actually picking and choosing the technology based on what we want and need and not the other way around. So not thinking, oh, well, I have to have a Fitbit or a, you know, Apple Watch or whatever if I'm serious about health. It's actually the opposite. It's actually augmenting, using technology to augment our already human experience, I suppose, in how we want to regulate our well-being and our bodies and and that type of thing as we move into this more smart environment. Mm. I love the point you made about choosing the technology versus just doing it or using it because it's there. And I don't know what you think, you're, you're more tech savvy than me, but it seems that in the whole tech field, like there's a lot of excitement about, I think things get created because we can. And we don't necessarily stop and think of what's the consequence for the end user. But yeah, choosing what's the technology. And for me, when it comes to my health and well-being, I know that self-monitoring really helps change habits. So when I want to self-monitor something I need to improve or top up on, I've actually consciously chosen I'm actually not going to use an app. I'm going to use my journal and my pen and paper because I don't want another reason that keeps me on my phone at nighttime. But that's a conscious choice, isn't it? Rather than thinking, oh, I must have the latest, the latest and the greatest. 
Mm, no, absolutely. And for me, I thought I liked writing in a journal with a smart pen so that I could put it onto my device or whatever. And what I realized is that I never did the smart bit of it, right? I just, I would write and then I wouldn't put it onto my device because I didn't need it on my device. And then I realized, should I don't need a smart pen. I actually really enjoy writing on pieces of like journaling on paper with colored textures. And, you know, there's nothing smart about that. But yeah, actually going, well, I don't need this thing, but there's lots of pressure to have, oh, well, I have to use that and then I'll make it into some kind of graphic and then I'll do something with it. One of the, who was it? Oh, Kat Matson, who's the digital officer, uh, chief digital officer of Brisbane. She always jokes that she should be called the analog, chief analog officer, <laughs> because she loves pen and paper. And it's actually the choosing is the smart bit. The smart bit is not that you just have every bit of technology you can possibly have because you can. The smart part is actually, yeah, what bits you've chosen to actually improve your life rather than just getting swept away with the hype and the buzz and all those things, which is why people like like you and I, we need to be involved in the conversation. So then, you know, we don't just get swept away with the buzz and the hype. We actually go, mm, how is this impacting me or my family or my community or the most disadvantaged people in my community? Because it's all might be well and good for some groups, but for others, it's actually having a really detrimental negative impact. Um, so what things can we put in place to make sure that we're actually assessing those things and, and doing something about it? Yeah, it's quite a job, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Welcome to my brain. Yes. But I love also what you said about, you know, the smart part is the choosing, is selecting. And the other thing that strikes me, particularly around well-being, is well-being is not a set and forget activity. You know, it's something that we constantly, we're always updating our apps. We have to constantly be updating, you know, our self-assessments. Where am I at? How do my strategies need to change? Because life keeps changing as well. and yeah, you know, we need to be agile, inverted commas, in the way that we deal with our health because sometimes people get very a limited idea about how they should eat healthily or get more exercise. Actually, there's a whole range of ways. and We just need to choose the right way and, and adjust at different life stages. Mm. And it kind of comes back to that self-regulating again, obviously a different context, but continue to remain informed so then you can actually shift and change a little bit if you know, rather than just setting and forgetting. Mm. It is a massive issue, the self-regulation, I like that term that you used. And because I just know with so many of the working professionals that I, as I said, do coaching with or look at workplaces, most of them will hold up their phone and kind of go, oh God, you know, it's, they'll admit I'm half addicted and it's interfering with my attention span. And in order to tackle that, you know, we do need a degree of self-discipline or self-regulation. And and we need to expect that when we are perhaps reigning in the controls, that it's going to be uncomfortable. People will feel anxious if they don't check their email, you know, in that first moment of the workday. If they're practicing delaying a bit, expect to feel anxious. That's a normal part of tackling an addiction. But yeah, self-regulation either for the purposes of not becoming addicted or factoring in those recovery time, it's the really essential health skill. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, my phone is on black and white mode at the moment and I do it from time to time because I feel I'm testing out the data. I feel like I get less kind of addicted or, or stimulated by it because it's not coloured, right? And I've done it a couple of times now and I, I do think it makes a difference, but now I'm actually going to measure the impact. So I really think that a lot of the time we're just there to 
it's obvious. We're just there because it's something shiny. It's like, you know, a poker machine, you know, that's the same algorithm, right? But more fancy. I'd love to hear that, how that experiment goes. How's it going so far? Do you notice a difference? Yeah, absolutely. Particularly on things like online shopping and stuff like that. Not that I, not that I do that very often, but I know my favorite brand or whatever will send me an email. And before I would have a look and go, Oh, that's nice or whatever. But really, I just look at it now and go, well, can't do anything with that. And even LinkedIn or whatever, you just you start reading the words rather than looking at pictures, which is, yeah, interesting. And even Instagram, you can still see it and you still see what's going on. But yeah, it's just, it's much less stimulating, I think, on the brain. But okay, I wanted to ask you about emerging trends. So any thoughts on what we aren't talking about enough? I think a lot of what we're talking about, we probably aren't talking about enough. But anything more you want to add to that? We kind of touched on it. But one thing, I want to see more conversations at the very early stage of the design of writing algorithms of creating new apps is how is this going to impact the body and that's what I would would love to see like it's crazy that we still have computers that we sit at all day and it still works imagine if we had to do 10 star jumps every hour to keep our computers going I mean you know we waved our arms and you know it picked up on that I really want to see those conversations factored right in the very beginning and yeah because the body is our home, it's our foundation, it's the only vehicle that we have for living. And I think, you know, as we're getting all starry-eyed about artificial intelligence, you know, we tend to forget how amazingly intelligent the body is and we should be listening to it, learning from it and respecting it. And if we're going to have to learn to live more and more with robots and technology, that needs to be a healthy relationship. So the needs of the body, I think, should be factored in way earlier in the design process. That's what I would like to see. And some of the other trends that I'll be really interesting to follow is I know that some people in this field are really saying that the body is going to be, you know, become redundant and we could almost replace human beings with robots. I was even hearing one tech futurist say that when it comes to loneliness, which is a growing and massive issue, which arises from disconnection, that it would be a really good idea to use robots to hug people to address the epidemic of loneliness. And sorry, I've got a few problems with that one. But what that all raises, it raises questions about, okay, so what is a human being? Is it just a bag of biochemicals and electrical impulses or is there something more to the human being that is housed in the body? You know, what is this thing called love, for example, which is, you know, what we all crave and need to be healthy and happy. So I'll be interested to see if they think they can, yeah, completely replace the body. I don't, but I think that kind of discussion is we'll be hearing more about. Awesome. Thank you so much, Thea. It's been absolutely amazing to talk to you again. And yeah, I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much, Zoe. I enjoyed the chat. Awesome. I just have one last question, which is how can people connect with you? Yeah, so I'm really easy to find online. It's thea.com.au. That's T-H-E-A.com.au. You can chat to me there and I'm most active on LinkedIn. I've cut down on all my social media and I love chatting to people on LinkedIn if you want to find me there as well. Excellent. Yes, I have done the same. LinkedIn is my place to be also. Great. Thanks, Leah. Um, We'll talk again soon. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community. 
If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community or find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter at smartcompod. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears, so thank you in advance. As always, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. 